I hope that for those of you who are doing it, you are enjoying uh, Diana Butler Bass's book on freeing Jesus. We, um, I've been, I've read it now a couple of months ago, and I'm reading through it again with a different color marker. So I'm, uh, I'm finding uh, finding different things in it every time. I wanted to start off, our topic this morning is Jesus as teacher, but I wanted to start out with just uh, reflecting on one thing that Bass mentions in the book. This is a little bit for the nerds, so if this isn't particularly interesting to you, uh, feel free to uh, think about something else, and then hopefully it'll bring you back uh, in a few minutes. But you may remember if you read the chapter uh, that uh, Bass quotes makes a long quote from C.S. Lewis. It may be a familiar quote to many of you, but I thought I would uh, uh, put it up on the, on the screen again and just read it. This is C.S. Lewis. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would, be, he would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I grew up with this quote from C.S. Lewis and with books like those of Josh McDowell, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, which is also mentioned by Diana in her book. And this perspective on thinking about Jesus and, and trying to find the evidence that demands a verdict is rooted in something I mentioned two weeks ago in the introduction, which is this 19th century biblical, historical biblical criticism People were looking at the scriptures and applying scientific developments to it. And the science was producing evidence which contradicted many long-held assumptions about life and theology. So what Christians did, and nothing really wrong with doing this, was began to look at, at the evidence, the proofs, the reasons why it would be just as valid to say that the Bible and its message and Jesus and his existence and his work is true as it's not, as an antidote to the doubts raised by science. And what that led to was the, this kind of binary thinking that we see reflected in this quote of C.S. Lewis. There's an either or, either Jesus is this or he's that. He's either this or he's not that. And actually, when I was first reading this chapter about six months ago, in that same week, a tweet came across my feed by Tim Keller, Reverend Tim Keller, whom I'm sure many of you know, 
And this was his tweet. It's impossible to have met the real Jesus and be indifferent. Bow down or go away offended. Notice the binary here. There's really only two choices. I don't want to suggest that this way of thinking has no merit at all. There really are good reasons rooted in science, history, archaeology, linguistics, etc., to depend on the reliability of God's word. But when this kind of thinking leads us to these binaries, to this either or, it's either this or that in its entirety, we can miss something important. And it's this. Even when Jesus was on earth and people could see him, they could speak with him, they could eat with him, they could travel with him, they could live with him, everyone responded to him differently. In the time of Jesus, there wasn't this choice. You either accepted him as this or you didn't accept him as that. Some people rejected him completely. Some watched from a distance in fascination and maybe drew a little closer and then moved back again. Some prayed, I believe, but please help my unbelief. Some, many, or even most actually, didn't understand. Some understood some things, but not other things. Some of his closest friends betrayed and abandoned him. Others understood clearly, but then very quickly got derailed. You remember Peter's confession when Jesus asked the disciples, who do you think I am? And Peter said, you're the son of the living God, the Christ, the son of the living God. And just within minutes, Jesus was saying, get behind me, Satan. When Jesus was alive and walking on earth, there weren't these binaries. He responded to people in different ways. And people responded him to him in different ways. And my reason for pointing this out is that I want to give us freedom as we go through well, all of our spiritual life and all of our lives, but certainly through this, through this book and through this topic, to discover Jesus in your own way. And I'll bring in a quote from uh, Diana Butler Bass from the last chapter on friendship, but I think it's relevant here. She says, some versions of Christianity insist that Jesus is immutable, that he doesn't change. But if Jesus invites us into friendship, how can that be? As Jesus reaches toward a world of potential friends, does not every hand that is returned in some way transform Jesus as well? And what you end up thinking about is the dynamic of the relationship. We're talking about two people here, and that's never binary. It's never static. And so I just wanted to start with this just to, just to encourage us to, to enter into relationship with Jesus and not put it in these 
It's either this or either that. We're in relationship with all of its riches and all of its developments and all the possibilities for growth and change and learning and discovering new things. And now on to Jesus as teacher. The quote at the top of the chapter is from John 13, 13. Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. And Diana talks about three different aspects of Jesus as teacher, and I just want to run through them briefly with you this morning. First of all, Jesus as a teacher who gives the commands or the rules. And it's very clear that Jesus as a teacher did say that there are some things that you should do and some things that you shouldn't do. You remember perhaps a few years ago, we went through a series on the Beatitudes and we talked about the Beatitudes as leading us into, and we substituted for the word blessed, we substituted the word flourishing. Jesus is real clear. If you do some things, you're going to flourish. If you don't do other things, if you keep other things out of your life, you're going to flourish. And if you do some things, you're going to have trouble flourishing. And I wanted to go through some of them just to remind us of them this morning. From the, These are all from the Sermon on the Mount. They're from Matthew 5. They'll appear on your screen. <clears throat> Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus taught. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. But Jesus is just standing as a teacher, and he's just saying, look, if you live this way, if you do these things, if you don't do these things, 
You will be people who flourish. You'll be people who go through life with a sense of well-being, with an actual well-being, and also be able to, to be of benefit and blessing to those around. Those are just like teaching, like just saying, this is the way it is, folks. Do this, and things will go well with you. So there's that aspect of Jesus as teacher. And then Diana talks about Jesus as the teller of parables. And she says this about the parables. Jesus' stories give us no neat solutions. Instead, they ask us to dive more deeply into the questions, to wrestle with the story, with the parable, again and again. The kingdom of God is like that, a different kind of mystery, one that invites listeners to be part of the story. So as you all know, Jesus tells these parables, these stories, the kingdom of heaven is like. And I thought rather than myself kind of going into that a little bit, the Bible Project, whose videos I regularly show here, has a great little video on the parables of Jesus. And I thought I would show that this morning just to remind us of the breadth and depth and the purpose and what Jesus is trying to do as he tells the parables. Jesus of Nazareth was a master teacher, and some of his most well-known teachings are told in short stories called parables. Yeah, like the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who was looking for pearls, and when he found the ultimate pearl, he sold everything so that he could buy it. Must have been some pretty amazing pearl. Or the kingdom of God is like a tiny mustard seed that a farmer planted in his garden. It grew and became a huge tree, and birds came to perch in its branches. And that's a beautiful image, but... What does it mean? Exactly. Jesus didn't tell parables to make everything clear. Rather, he wanted to provoke the imagination and invite people to see what God is doing in the world from a new perspective. So let's talk about how to read the parables of Jesus. Now, there's many great teachers that throughout history have used stories to teach students about morality, religion, philosophy. But Jesus didn't use his parables to teach abstract religious or moral ideals. He said that his parables were about himself and his mission. His mission, which was to announce that the kingdom of God was arriving on earth as it is in heaven. Right. So in Jesus' day, the Israelites were ruled by the Roman Empire. But their scriptures promised that one day their God would come to rule his people as king. And so many Israelites wanted to revolt against Rome and fight for their freedom. And this is what some people thought of as the kingdom of God. Exactly. But Jesus was a poor, traveling prophet, healing the sick, inviting people to follow him. And he said that this was the arrival of God's kingdom. And that didn't fit people's expectations. Right. And so Jesus used some parables to help people imagine that his small movement was the arrival of God's kingdom. Oh, yeah, like the parable that the kingdom of God is yeast hidden in a lump of dough. And you might not see its influence, but it's going to change everything. Jesus also told parables about the upside-down values of God's kingdom, about how the least important people in the world are actually the most important people to God, especially those who are poor and of low status. Yeah, like the parable about the business owner who hired workers throughout the day, in the morning, later in the day, and even towards the end of the day. 
And when it was time to pay everyone, he paid them all the same wage. Right. Jesus is showing how money and status are irrelevant to God, who offers his generous mercy to everybody. Now, not all of the parables have happy endings. Some are really intense. Yes, Jesus stood in the tradition of Israel's prophets, who also told parables to criticize Israel's leaders because they mistook their kingdom for God's. So Jesus warned the leaders of his day, if they don't accept his offer of God's kingdom, they're headed for destruction. Yeah, like the parable of the landowner who built a wonderful vineyard, and he expects it to produce fruit. Yes, Jesus gets this parable from the prophet Isaiah, but then he adapts it. Right, and so the landowner appoints managers to take care of this vineyard. And at harvest, he sends servants to collect the fruit, but those managers kill the servants. And so the landowner sends his own son to confront the managers, and they kill him too. And so Jesus asked the people around him, what do you all think this landowner should do? Oh, he's going to punish those managers and hire new ones. Jesus knew that if Israel kept on their current path, they would be destroyed by Rome. And so in parables like this, he's forcing people to make a decision about his offer of God's kingdom. Are people going to reject him, ignore him, or trust and follow him? Now, if this message of God's kingdom is so important... Why cloak it in parables? Why not be more clear? Well, through riddles and parables, Jesus could make really bold claims that revealed truth to people who were open-minded. For those who have ears to hear, they could ponder it and go deeper. But the parables would also conceal his message from those who were against him so that he could buy more time. Buy time for what? Well, Jesus was preparing his closest followers for the greatest surprise yet. Jesus claimed that Israel's God was coming to rule over his people not through coercion or violent force, but through self-giving love as he was going to die for their sins. But his death wasn't the end. Right. He said that his death would be like a tiny seed buried in the ground. But then it would grow and produce a crop with many seeds. So these parables, they explain who Jesus was and what he was up to. And the gospel authors have preserved these parables so that now every generation of Jesus' followers can read and ponder them. And imagine how God's kingdom is still at work even today. Right. These ancient parables are still full of new surprises and challenges. They're like a storehouse packed with treasures, some that are new, some that are old, and it's all just waiting to be discovered. Then Diana talks about Jesus as sage. And this was one of the concepts that I found most interesting and and gave me lots to think about in terms of thinking about Jesus as teacher. And uh, a quote from the chapter, just to help us get into what she means by this. A sage is a certain kind of teacher one who upsets convention by offering a different way of understanding and living, a way that embodies wisdom. Sages teach justice with compassion. Sages set people free. Jesus invites into a way of life based on a vision of a wildly gifted God who created everything, who turns authority upside down, 
and who shatters the pretenses of power, who proclaims a kingdom of the heart, and who brings the poor, the outcast, the forgotten, and the mourning to a table set with an endless feast. And he taught this by holding forth the rule of love, extending the purview of divine commands, and speaking in, po in proverbs, poetry, paradox, and parables to confound the learned and compel the curious. With all due respect to C.S. Lewis and Josh McDowell, it was, to use their term, mad. Jesus as this sage, Jesus as this person who not just told about principles of life, but who shared his life, who lived and walked and spoke and ate and did all the things that are involved in living with his people. And I found this embodied again in a passage that I'm sure all of you know very well from Philippians chapter 2, which we're going to read together. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God and did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus as teacher, Jesus as sage, is all rooted in this movement of his to empty himself of all his glory, of his equality with God, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being obedient to the point of death in order to serve and to save the people and the creation whom he loves. And Jesus as teacher is embodied, I think, in this image of emptying himself and coming down and being a servant. And Jesus invites us into this way of life. He teaches us by showing us the way and inviting us to follow him. And when we follow him, we are given the resources to be able to empty ourselves, to become a teacher ourselves, to maybe even become a sage. Jesus, the teacher, leads us and calls us to be teachers. Just like Jesus, the friend, calls us and leads us to be friends. Remember that verse that we just read, the passage that we just read, starts with these words, have this mind among yourselves. So it's not just that Jesus is doing this at a distance, 
And it's something we watch and observe and see happen. No, it's Jesus who, who, who goes before us and then calls us to follow him as we empty ourselves and as we give ourselves to him and to the world in which we find ourselves and serve him by teaching, by helping others, by being there for others. I don't know how many of you, probably most of you saw at this year's inauguration of President Biden, Amanda Gorman, who uh, who uh, read her, recited her, her poem there. And I remember, and it came across my screen against this week, again this week, the last lines of the poem. For there is always light, if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. Jesus as teacher, Jesus as light, Jesus as showing us the way is always there. If only we're brave enough to see it. And only if we're, if only we're brave enough to be it. And as we go to the communion table this morning, I would like to encourage you to come to the table to listen to Jesus as teacher. What would he be saying to you this morning? How would he be challenging you? How would he be revealing aspects of his kingdom to you? How would he be showing you how you can empty yourself and become a servant in order to serve others in the very, very practical things of your everyday life, whatever you're doing to fill your days and your nights? How can Jesus as teacher and parable teller, storyteller, and sage impact your lives? And then how can you go and be an impact and an influence, a teacher, storyteller, and sage in the lives of others? And I hope as we come to the communion table this morning that we will, that we will Ask God to help, help, help us understand that in new ways and then give us the strength as we partake of the elements to go out and be what he's called us to be, which is, as our topic this morning is, to be a teacher, a storyteller, and a sage to the world in which we live. Amen.